0: Let's hear God speak his word. This is from the 11th chapter of Luke, verses 14 through 36, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, How will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beazable. And if I cast out demons by Beazable, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when a stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breath at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing... He began to say this generation is an evil generation it seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh so will the son of man be to this generation the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, Having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray
1: that as we open your word, that we would see it as living, that we would see your son so clearly through it. Be with me as I seek to proclaim your word, matching it with the vigor contained within it. And be with these saints as they receive its vitality. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series in Luke this morning. Last week, Pastor Eric talked about how to pray. And in that sermon, he focused on what our prayers should be centered on. Primarily, uh, that God's will be done and that his work would continue. Today's passage, in many ways, and in many ways that I had not expected when I first started studying for this, uh, builds off of that idea. And that whole passage ends with Jesus promising the Spirit to all those who ask for it. So before we look at the passage today, I want to talk for a minute just about how we uh, doubt God and how we sometimes criticize God for not acting in the ways that we want or maybe expect. I think it's easy to look around the world and to to see the multitude of issues uh, in the world and to simply stop and wonder what God is even doing. And it's uh, been 2,000 years since Christ came, and I think many people feel like the world is getting worse. And whether or not it actually is, I think it's all subjective and it probably just depends on uh, what way you're evaluating it. Uh, I think that that feeling feeds into this sense that God is somehow slacking in the world. But really, those doubts and criticisms ultimately reflect a misunderstanding of who God is. Fundamentally, how we understand God as God is going to shape how we interpret his actions in the world. And I'm not talking in the sense of, like, you know, not having the complete picture and sort of, you know, we miss the the bigger picture, although obviously that's also an issue. But I'm more talking about stuff that we see and we recognize as being from God, but we disagree with it because we have misconceptions of who God is. Specifically for today, I think we wrestle with concepts like hell and judgment, and we see what God is doing, but we wonder why he's doing it like this, and, you know, why does he have to judge the world in the first place. And so I'm hoping by looking at our passage today that we'll see just how the people in Jesus' time misunderstood him, but also try to point out what Jesus has declared he is doing. So let's read the beginning of that passage again. Uh, Luke 11, 14 through 16. Now he was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul the ruler of the demons, and others as a test were demanding of him a sign from heaven. So Jesus, he goes out and he heals a mute man, which at that point probably just sounds like regular Jesus stuff, you know? Uh, And so we notice, though, three responses to that healing. And that's, I think, what makes this sort of a unique encounter. First, you have the expected amazement at what he's done, right? A guy couldn't speak and now he can. Okay, it's a miracle. I'm sure his life was changed forever as a result. Uh, So that's a normal response. But the second one, I think, is a lot more sinister in nature. They accuse the Son of God really of being a son of Satan. And so, you know, they look at his work, but they see it as no miracle. Instead, this is just evidence that Jesus was working with Satan. And the last response is a skeptical one. These people needed to know the authority that Jesus had. So they demanded a sign from him. Now, we'll get to each of these responses, but each of them is in need of some correction. You might think that the people who were amazed weren't in the wrong, but we'll see even there that Jesus had to expand on what they understood about him. More on that later. But the focus of this passage is primarily on that second group, okay? the ones who accused Jesus of working with Beelzebul, which would be uh, understood as Satan today. Um, for those of you who are curious, right? it's actually referring back to Baal right? in the Old Testament the common enemy of of the Israeli people. And it's a title for the one who rules over all the demons. And so these people are actually accusing Jesus of drawing upon satanic power uh, and doing the work of Satan. So, you know, if you've ever felt misinterpreted or misunderstood, boy, Jesus is just, yeah, in a whole different situation here. So how does Jesus reply to this, though? He responds in such a way that He really turns the whole statement in on themselves while lifting himself up above reproach. There are several parts to his response, so let's start with the first, reading that uh, first part of his response again. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebub. So the first part to his response is simply that their argument makes no sense, right? A house divided will fall. So if Jesus is actually on Team Satan, why is he working against him? Right? That's as silly as if you're watching like the Bears game and the Bears player scores a touchdown, you're like, ah, I knew it. He's working for the other team. You know, it's it's silly. It doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> so Jesus' next response, however, turns the accusation around on them. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub. By whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 19 through 20. Essentially, Jesus is saying that, you know, they have their own people who are doing the same work. They're performing exorcisms. Uh, and They aren't accusing them of working for Satan. Actually, they would say that these exorcists are doing good things, working for God and in his name. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And so... Really, Jesus is trying to get at that if they're claiming that Jesus is working for Satan, they're actually condemning their own people who are going out and exercising demons. But they aren't condemning them. And so Jesus says that in itself is a form of judgment on, on themselves. And so they trust their own people, but not Jesus. i will say more on that in just a second. But Jesus doesn't end his response there. He then says that if it isn't by the power of Satan that he drives out demons, and I'd say he's effectively proven his point, then actually what he is doing is the work of God. Specifically, his work is the sign that the kingdom of God has come upon them. Uh, the finger of God language actually goes back to the Old Testament with Moses uh, and the, the ten commandments that he received, the law, right? And essentially it just it represents the word of God, right? Jesus is doing this work through the finger of God, through the word of God. So here's where the misconception of who Jesus was comes into play, right? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who came to take away the sins of the world. His work on earth was to teach people about the kingdom of heaven, about what it meant to be in relationship with God. He taught them of their brokenness and how their sins had kept them from God. But his ministry is to heal and to restore humanity, sometimes physically, but primarily spiritually. And so this exorcism really highlights... The reality of both those things right he's healing this man by casting out his demons so this person is experiencing physical relief but also obviously a spiritual relief so jesus he's at work in the world he's meeting these physical and spiritual needs and this work is what he's getting at in verses 21 through 23 when a strong man fully armed guards his estate his possessions are secure but when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me, it's against me. And anyone who does not gather with me, scatters. This is the work of Christ, being done through his word. Jesus uses some imagery here to help paint a picture of that for us. Satan has grabbed a hold of the world and he has made it his home. He has overpowered humanity and taken everything for himself. He has spent years building up his defenses and building up his wealth by taking from those he's conquered. He has dominated the world, and he's done so at humanity's expense, at our expense. Now, many were and are completely blind to this kingdom and just knew that they had some unknown source of unfulfillment or dissatisfaction. To those beholding this kingdom Satan has built, with those impressive defenses, it was probably disheartening to know that there was nothing that they could do. They weren't strong enough. He was too powerful. But Christ is more powerful than even he, and Jesus alludes to his overpowering of Satan, replacing his demonic kingdom with his heavenly one. There are examples of God rescuing his children in scripture. The Old Testament is building up to the work of Christ, and uh, there are often many examples of what is to come in the history of Israel. There's the story of God rescuing his people from Egypt, right, and delivering them and and, uh, bringing them into the promised land. There you had Pharaoh. He's the big bad, right? And the Hebrews are powerless to overcome him on their own. But it goes on, right? We can look to the book of Judges where the Israelites were captive to their own sin uh, and depravity and how God continually delivered them out of their captors' hands. There's, of course, the story of Goliath, this oppressive giant who intimidates the people of God. But once again, God raises up someone to ultimately bring him down. And the prophets too. You have Babylon and Assyria, who are both attacking the people of God and have enslaved them. But once again, God ultimately defeats their enemies and brings them back home. So the story theme, it's very common, but none of them are really dealing with the root issue. There is always another Pharaoh, another Goliath. These were just figureheads of something far more terrible. And of course, those are only the enemies from the outside. Right? Speaking nothing of the darkness within the hearts of men and women. Satan held his oppressive regime, but it was our sin that kept us in bondage to him. And it is this reality that Paul, I think, is thinking of when he cries out in Romans 7, saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As Christians, you've probably felt that battle before. The continued struggle with sin. And perhaps you felt hopeless, perhaps you've cried out to God to defeat this sin in your life. But God has answered. And this is what Jesus is proclaiming here in our passage, that he is doing what was whispered in the garden. All the way back to Adam and Eve, when they were first grappling with the weight of the rebellion, after they ruined perfection, as they sat with the now broken relationships with each other, with God, with themselves, and with the world. While they were naked and afraid, God offered a mysterious hope. And God turns to their deceiver and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Some of you maybe know this already, but offspring there is not in the plural in Hebrew, but in the singular, meaning that there is one who will crush the serpent's head. And Jesus says in our passage today that to overcome a strong man, it takes someone even stronger. He is that stronger man. Jesus can overcome the man that has a fortress. He's going to be the one that crushes the serpent's head. And the missing thing from all those other biblical stories is found here. And the cycles are broken. Satan is powerful, but even he is powerless to stand before Christ, our conqueror. Satan is humiliated even. His defenses are breached, his armor stripped. And his plunder is just passed around. And only Jesus has that kind of power. And he uses it to free us from the bondage of Satan, but also of sin. Now, if you've encountered Jesus, you understand then that he is the creator of all things. But that he also became the created thing. And we take this for granted, I think, because it's so central to our theology. We, we, I think, say this in so many different ways but we we tend to overlook its significance i think but jesus the creator of all things became a created being and why did he do that he did it for you he for all of his children and who are we we're his enemies we despised him we hated the effects of sin but we love sin itself and despite this christ became sin for us he who knew no sin became sin for sinners we hated him And yet Christ loved us. So he became human. And he lived for us, suffered for us, bled and died for us. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, defeating the one even more terrible than Goliath. Satan and death have no hold over us any longer. And Jesus ascended into heaven where he now sits, reigning over Satan's broken and scattered kingdom here on earth. And through his church, he is gathering people to himself, in preparation for the day that he comes back to fully replace Satan's kingdom with his own. And this kingdom is so different than the one that Satan has built here. The kingdom of heaven is pure and unblemished righteousness. There is no flaw in it. And in order for this kingdom to work, however, this perfect kingdom, God is going to eliminate all unrighteousness from the earth so as not to taint his perfect kingdom. The question is, though, do we meet those qualifications? Do we really fit the bill of being able to enter this perfect kingdom? Are you righteous? As you stand before God, as he filters out all the evil in the world, are you going to be able to say, oh, I'm perfect. I can come into the kingdom. And not just mostly righteous, right? Not just mostly perfect even. But are we perfectly righteous? If Satan's kingdom is going to be eradicated, there can be no trace of imperfection. And so while it's great that you tithe, it's great that you help out those in need, you show grace to your coworkers. are you absolutely perfect? Are you completely without blemish in your life? If the answer is no, if you've ever told a lie, if you've gossiped about somebody or or lusted after another human being or was envious of what the neighbors had, then by your own merit, you have no right to be in this new kingdom. We have no right because if permitted to enter our own imperfections would tarnish this perfect kingdom. Now listen, we love the idea that Jesus has conquered death, but friends, we are death. And we love the idea of a world with no sin and brokenness, but friends, we are broken. And that's bad news for you and me as we stand before the Father and as he evaluates what is worthy of his kingdom and what is not. But the gospel means good news. And there is indeed good news for us. Because despite all my own wretchedness, my own sinful nature, my my unrighteousness, Jesus is perfectly righteous and he offers to unite me to himself. Scripture says Christ's righteousness becomes our own. Paul writes this in Philippians. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And that relationship is what allows us to know him and to experience his resurrection. He says even more directly in 1 Corinthians one thirty, Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have done nothing. Only Christ has done it all. We are not worthy of this new kingdom, and yet Christ is worthy enough to make the unworthy worthy. We stand before the Father on the day of judgment, and he will ask us if we are righteous. And for those of us who trust in Christ, we are trusting that Jesus' righteousness is good enough to cover our unrighteousness. And so we are, Scripture declares, not by our own righteous acts, but by Christ alone, who paid the penalty for our unrighteousness. God will look at us in that day of judgment. And for those of us who have put our trust in in Christ, he's going to see Jesus' righteousness, and he's going to be pleased. Getting back to our passage, though, Jesus tells his listeners that he is overthrowing Satan. Anyone who is not with him, and in this context, meaning anyone criticizing Christ, is working to scatter the people instead of gathering them to Christ. Building on that, Jesus goes on in verse 24 through 26 to say this, When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places, looking for rest, and not finding rest. It then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. All right, so that's an odd passage, admittedly, all right? And its meaning might be a little hard to grasp at first glance or second or third, if you're me. Uh, but there's a point here, right, that uh, Jesus is trying to get at. This this entire encounter, this whole passage, starts with Jesus casting out a demon, right? And he's criticized for it, but Jesus then speaks of his work in defeating the powers and principalities in the world. And for those criticizing Christ, they stand in a place where Jesus has essentially promised to exercise the entire world. But what will they do with that? And so this is what Jesus is saying, right? He's cast out demons in the world, and, you know, for you specifically, right, your life is sort of put back together, but the demons are restless. And eventually, they'll wander back, and they'll just check in on you, see how you're doing. And this one in the story notices a tidy home, but it's empty. And Jesus has talked about how he is the one who can overpower the strong man and Satan. But unless you've put Christ there to guard you, to guard your house, the demon will just come back. And when he does, he's going to come back fully armed like the strong man in the previous section. The last state of that person is worse than the first. And so it is with these people criticizing Jesus, misunderstanding what it is that he's doing. And Jesus essentially poses the question then for his hearers then, and for us, do you want to be a part of the kingdom that is fading? Or do you want to be a part of the lasting kingdom, the one that's been built and already been established? So the people hear this, and so we see in our next section, as he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the one who nursed you. He said, Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So this woman, she's clearly amazed by Jesus, and so we see our second response to Jesus' exorcism and teaching. Mary, the mother of Jesus, deserves praise, as the woman says, but for more than what she says, right? Jesus wants to expand her understanding of that. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, exclaimed to Mary that she was blessed in her pregnancy with Jesus. And Mary herself understood this in the Magnificat, right? In Luke 1.48, she says, the nations will consider her blessed. So this woman in the crowd, it's not that she's wrong, she's right. Mary will be blessed, but Jesus, again, he wants to expand on Her understanding of this, because she is blessed for far more than just simply being the mother of Jesus. She is blessed because she trusted the word of the Lord and she obeyed it. Think for a minute on Mary and her story, right? She's this young woman in a pretty terrifying situation. And yet when told of what was going to happen, her response was simply, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Okay, that's great, but why is the story here? It's further judgment on the people doubting Jesus' intentions. And it also serves as a warning to those that were there in that moment. It also ties in with the last section, asking what your defense is going to be against the demons looking to settle down. Because for those who hear the word of the Lord and obey it, uh, who keep it and trust in Christ, they are united to the stronger man. He's going to be there to guard their estate. But for those who haven't, Are the demons just going to find it empty and tidy? They've all seen and heard Jesus in this passage, and they have to reckon with that. Similarly, everyone here today also has to reckon with that. Do you trust Jesus to be able to have the coming judgment pass over you? There's still that last group of people, though, the ones seeking a sign from Jesus. And so Jesus, he deals with them in our next section, uh, verse 29 to 32. As the crowds were increasing, he began saying, This generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, because she came uh, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will will stand up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. So this section, it's sort of an exclamation point of sorts, actually, to the previous sections of our passage. Jesus brings up the fact that their generation was wicked. And again, judgment is coming. They want a sign, which is partly because of their wickedness. But uh, because even though they hear the word of the Lord, it isn't enough for them to accept it and obey it. Jesus says that this in of itself is bringing judgment on themselves. But why? I mean, surely these are difficult things to accept, right? Jesus being the Son of God. But Jesus, he goes back into their history to show how much better off they are than the previous generations that they revere so much. And so he uses two examples to do this. Jonah and the Queen of the South. Jonah was tasked with going to Nineveh, a place well known for their wickedness. Uh, This was a people who had attacked Israel and had caused great harm to them as a nation. And Jonah goes and he preaches a message of repentance and a warning of judgment. There was no miracle, no sign given, just the preaching of the word. And surprisingly, it works. They respond and respond positively. They repent and really the entire city repents from this. So they're spared judgment, even though they deserve it uh, through the mercy of God. For the queen of the south, this actually references back to 1 Kings 10. And in that story, she comes up to Israel because of everything she had heard about Solomon and his great wisdom. She wanted to meet him and see for herself this great wisdom on display. After talking with him, she is indeed impressed and actually gives him a bunch of gifts as a result of their encounter. So there's a common link between these two stories. Both of them offer truth to Gentiles, to those outside of the Jewish faith. And so God has set out to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Jonah, or Jesus focuses on Jonah, though, for good reason. Uh, You see, if you, Jonah, if you remember, right, he does not want to preach this message to Nineveh. Uh, He hates the Ninevites. And Jonah failed to see who God was, and he resisted him as God was calling him to this. Now Jonah was spared judgment as well, but God deliberately holds up the Ninevites to Jonah as a means of exposing Jonah's hard heart. Because the Ninevites, they received God and his teachings, but Jonah had not fully, even though he was an Israelite, and even though he was a prophet of the Lord. And so Jesus, he exposes these people in our passage in the same way. These people have seen something greater than the very successful Solomon, something greater than the very successful Jonah. They both preach truth with no special tricks And the people believed what they heard from these flawed men. What is their excuse going to be? Seeing a miracle and hearing the truth spoken by the very Son of God. Because the the generations prior, they believed lesser men and an incomplete truth. But in Christ, these people have heard from God directly. And not to scare you, but so have you. Not from me, of course, but through his word here today. We tend to look back and I think... We have this idea that faith would be so much easier if we could just have seen Jesus in person or any of the supernatural acts of God. And the reality is that, yeah, they saw Jesus in person, but they did not have the complete gospel account. Each one of us here today, we can go on reading Luke 12 and Luke 13, and we can read all the way through Revelation, right? We are without excuse. How many physical Bibles do you think are in this church? I mean, hundreds at least, right? Hundreds of copies of every divinely spoken word of God. And in my pocket, I have another Bible, with dozens of Bible translations that I can pull up in an instant. Right? The age of COVID, I think, has further illustrated the fact that you know, we have access to so many sermons right, from people uh, all over the world. And what about all the wonderful testimonies of people around the world? I mean, you can see videos on Facebook or whatever, uh, of just the work that God is doing throughout the world. We live in the post-Gutenberg Press era, right? We have books that explain Jesus, that explain the Bible. Uh, I mean, how many of those do we have just in my office and Pastor Eric's office, a library over there? And again, hundreds if not thousands of books explaining these things. So yeah, you know, we didn't see Jesus personally, but just as Jesus told these people in the passage today, The prior generation stand up in judgment against us. We don't have an excuse. We have heard the word of the Lord, and blessed are we who obey it. I say all that, friends, not to make you feel guilty, right? That's not at all the point. While there's certainly a firm warning here being given by Jesus, that's not his main point here. His point, actually, uh, is here in the final exhortation in our last section. No one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who may come in may see its light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Take care, then, that the light in you is not darkness. If, therefore, your whole body is full of light, with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated, as when a lamp shines its light on you. The word is a lamp unto my feet. Right? Most of us know this verse well from Psalm 119, 105. And God wants you to display his word within yourself. The eye was a sort of image back then used to discuss the soul in the ancient world. And so Jesus, he's saying that you need to use his word to shine brightly. And I think we've all heard that song, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Uh, and certainly there is a sense in which this light is meant to shine bright for others to see, so that they too might learn about Christ and learn to put their faith in him. In fact, Jesus was just talking about Gentiles and how they came to faith, right? But it is important to understand what the light is, which is the word. But Jesus is the word, as we see in John's Gospel. And we're supposed to be putting Jesus within us, right? So I'll close with two challenges. The first is directed towards those who are redeemed by Christ, For now, the light speaks of uh, uh, what Jesus speaks of here as this light dispels the darkness in our hearts and in the world. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in a spiritual battle. We see the symptoms of a war waged between kingdoms, and we need to take up arms against those evil forces. Satan is trying to get you to scatter the people, and he is opposing God's kingdom by tempting you to commit acts that run contrary to the kingdom's nature. When you lie, you betray the truthfulness of the kingdom. And the fear that hides behind the lie betrays the freedom that we have in Christ. When you gossip or talk badly about another person, you betray the notion of a place where we are united, where we're working together for the kingdom, fully forgiven of our sins and our past blemishes. When we're envious, we fail to show that Jesus is all-satisfying, has provided everything we need, and truly everything we could ever want. Satan is working in the world, but Christ is working through his word, and Satan cannot overcome it. So we need to make the word a central part of our life as we seek to fight this battle. Read scripture. Cultivate your relationship with Christ. Growing in your understanding of who he is, and not just what he is doing. But remember also that we rest in Jesus. And Jesus has already overthrown Satan and has promised to be rid of him entirely. The result of this battle is not in question. We need to fight, but the battle against the strong man does not rest on us, but in the stronger man, in Christ. And he is infinitely more righteous than we are. Wicked. Praise God for that. The second challenge is that this light is what is also going to be seen in the final judgment. Only those with bright lights will be allowed to take residence in this perfect kingdom that Christ is working. So if you have not put your faith in Christ and his ability to clothe your unrighteous body with his righteousness, then I welcome you to do so. Perhaps you're battle-scarred and you think your past is too messy to be redeemed in this way. Perhaps after hearing these words today, you understand yourself as one who scatters, as one who is in employment of Satan and his army. Maybe you recognize that your life largely works against the life-giving nature of the kingdom of God. And I suppose you might be feeling that this offer that I'm giving you is, uh, just seems too easy, that God can just wipe away your sins. But I assure you, it was not easy. Christ lowered himself. He lived among us in the war zone. He bled and died for us. The love is radical. It's hard to fathom, yes, but it is not easy christ offers you his bloody outstretched hand to unite you to himself that you can share in his eternal life and perfect fellowship with the father the spirit can create something new even in you and deliver you from this kingdom of darkness so let us take warning but also let's hope in the word of the lord as we finish here with reading isaiah 49 through 22 through 26 where God promises deliverance. This is what the Lord God says. Look, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and their queens, your nursing mothers. They will bow down to you with their faces to the ground and lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, that those who put their hope in me will not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from a mighty man, or the captives of a tyrant be delivered? For this is what the Lord says. Even the captives of a mighty man will be taken, and the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. Then all humanity will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer the mighty one of Jacob. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your son, that he was willing to humble himself, lower himself for our sake. We're grateful that he spoke his word to us and that we have his word recorded here before us. We are grateful for his sacrifice, for his righteousness that is so perfect in cleansing that it can cleanse even our unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that we would take this word to heart, that we would dwell on what it means, and that we would seek to implement it in our lives, both for ourselves but also for the world. And I pray that Christ would make himself known to us in the world through his word. And I pray that we proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom to those that don't know it. And Father, we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one
0: for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for